Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you all. Hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. Go Tigers, if you went to the game. Yeah, no, that's not a lot of woos. That's kind of sad, actually. Uh, if you're wondering who I am, uh, my name's Kyle Richter. I'm one of the pastors at The Crossing, the church in town uh, that Veritas is connected to. Specifically, I help lead Veritas. Uh, back in 2006, Warren Buffett, not the Margaritaville guy, that's Jimmy, Warren Buffett, uh, the, the CEO and chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, gave away several billion dollars with a B, billion dollars away to several charities. And after he did that, uh, some media outlets were talking to him um, about what he had done and about his own generosity. This is what he said. He said, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. There's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. You think that's true? That's a question that we're going to wrestle with the pretty much entire time tonight. Is there more than one way to get to heaven? See, Warren Buffett thinks so. But I kind of want to know what you guys think. What would you say? What do you think Jesus would say? See, those of you familiar with Jesus' teachings, his life, and his public ministry, you know that Jesus often made challenging, if not outright offensive claims. He said things like, whoever wants to save their life must lose it. He said things like, the first will be last, and the last will be first. He made people uncomfortable when he told them to pray for their enemies and to turn the other cheek when people do you wrong. Jesus proclaimed to the crowds that it is better to give than to receive. And he told many of his followers that it was that they should rejoice and be glad when others persecuted him them for his name's sake. You see the Bible often makes incredibly difficult, incredibly challenging claims, but arguably one of the most offensive things that the Bible, one of the most offensive claims that the Bible makes, not just to a first century audience, but to us here tonight in 2018, is found in a single verse in Acts chapter four. If you've been coming to Veritas the last couple of weeks, you know that we've started a series hitting the, some major passages through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And tonight, for whatever reason, I drew the short straw, and we're going to look at just a single verse. One verse, but it's a verse that I think regardless of whether you call yourself a Christian or not, I think it's going to have something to say to you, to me, to all of us. Before we get to that verse, though, let me, let me set up what's happening around it. Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, they've been arrested. Why? What's, what's happened? Well, some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were, they were angry. Angry because Peter and John were publicly teaching, publicly preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Now remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, belief in the resurrection of Jesus, belief that Jesus physically resurrected from the dead, that didn't come naturally for people. That message certainly wasn't always welcome. But that's the message that Peter and John are spreading. They're telling others that Jesus really is who he said he is. That Jesus had significance for their lives. That Jesus had relevance for their lives. That Jesus gave purpose and meaning to their lives that no one else could. 
And this teaching, it didn't go in one ear and out the other. People were listening. Lives were being changed. The spirit was at work. Jesus' small group of followers went from a dozen or so to several thousand just in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. And the so-called religious establishment of the day, this, this Jesus disturbance, it was seriously in danger of becoming a mass movement to them. And they don't want that, and so they send in the authorities. Peter and John are arrested. They're interrogated. They're intimidated. They're threatened, all as an attempt to shut them up. You see, they want them to stop talking about Jesus. That brings us to our verse tonight. What will Peter and John say? Good. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter and John, two common men, unschooled in rhetoric, unschooled in theology like the men they're speaking to, they're standing before the highest court in the land. They're standing in front of the, 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 the highest religious leaders, the most important religious leaders of the day. They stand before them and they have the unashamed confidence to say to their accusers, salvation is found nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. You see, the religious leaders, they thought that threatening Peter, they thought that threatening John would silence them. But instead, it emboldens their speech. Trying to hold these disciples back from talking about Jesus is like trying to keep a wave from breaking. You can't do it. It won't work. And so Peter and John, they won't stop telling others about Jesus. They won't stop because Jesus has given them a crucial part in his story to play. And that part is bringing the good news of his salvation. Where? To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, back in chapter 1. And so they stand before these big deal religious guys, and they say, hey, salvation is found in nowhere else. But surely they didn't really mean that, right? I mean, surely they weren't that naive. Surely they didn't actually think that salvation was really only found in Jesus. Maybe it was just a knee-jerk reaction to kind of the heat of the moment. Or maybe they actually believed it. And maybe they actually heard someone else say the exact same thing. John chapter 14, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I once heard someone say, um, hey, I know there are a lot of offensive things in the Bible, right? We've already talked about some of those things. But you know what? The most offensive word in the entire Bible to me is the word the. Why? Because when they read John chapter 14, verse 6, they realized that Jesus doesn't say, I'm a way and a truth and a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. You see, Jesus Christ had the audacity to say that he was the only way to God. In other words, if you claimed to know God but rejected Jesus, you didn't really know God, according to Jesus. Now, that's a provocative claim, right? 
And it's precisely the kind of claim, it's precisely the kind of statement that often infuriated so many people in the first century. It was the kind of claim that, that fueled the burning fire of a hostile culture towards Jesus and, and the early church. See, much of the Greco-Roman world was polytheistic, meaning they, they, they believed in all sorts of gods. And so the problem wasn't so much that, that Jesus was claiming to be a god, the problem was that Jesus claimed to be the only God. I've had the opportunity to uh, live a few summers now in Japan. We take a group of students, Veritas does every year for the past seven or eight years. Um, and we partner with the church there and we do some college ministry stuff. And, and I've seen this exact dynamic play out there. You see, in Japan, many people believe that literally anything can become a God. And so I remember talking to a college student on, on her campus, and, and we were talking about Jesus, and she said, Kyle, I, I honestly don't have a problem believing that Jesus was God. My problem with what you're saying, my problem with the Christianity that you represent is that you're telling me that all these other gods that I believe in don't exist. You see, in many ways, the first century is not much different than the 21st century with respect to Jesus' claims. See, just as people rejected Jesus' claims then, so too do they now. Just as Jesus' followers were labeled narrow-minded, bigots, exclusive in their beliefs, that's what their culture was saying about them. How often do we hear that about Christianity now? You believe that? Maybe some of you in here have experienced receiving that kind of comment. Are you kidding me? That's what you believe? That's so narrow-minded. I can't believe that you would actually think that. You see, our times look different. Our lives look different, but not a lot has changed from their day to ours. And so to make this claim that, that Jesus is the only way to God, that, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, well, in most contexts, maybe even particularly on a college campus, is to immediately spark controversy, to immediately spark an argument. How can you possibly say that? Why is that? Why is this particular claim of the disciples in Jesus so controversial? Why is it so offensive to our culture? Well, one of the reasons is because it strikes at the core of three great myths about religion. A lot of people have talked about these ideas, but I wanna take some time, actually pretty much the rest of our time, and I wanna look at three myths about religion. Here's the first one. All religions are basically the same. The first myth is that all religions are basically the same. You've probably heard this idea before. Right? Someone says in some kind of way, basically, uh, all religions just teach kind of the same thing. Right? And so what people do that, that kind of propagate this idea, this view, they, they, they typically, or maybe sometimes, they, they use an analogy. They use an illustration. And they say, they say this. They say, think about God sitting on top of a mountain. You kind of know where I'm going, right? Think about God sitting on top of a mountain. And then think about a bunch of individuals at the bottom of the mountain trying to take different paths to get up to God. Some of those paths that people are on are winding, right? Some are more direct. Some of those paths that people are walking on are rocky. Some are pretty smooth. Some have big obstacles. Some don't. 
But regardless of the particular path that the individual chooses to take, all paths meet at the same location, the top of the mountain, right? And that's where God is. And so in other words, the the argument goes, all spiritual paths lead up the same mountain because all religions basically teach the same thing. Do they? Of course not, right? Of course not. Just take the major world religions for a second. Right? If we just ask one little question, we could, we could talk so long about this, we can't possibly. Just ask one little question. Who sits at the top of the mountain? How would a few major world religions answer that question? If we go with the mountain path analogy, who's sitting at the top? Well, Buddhists would say nobody's sitting at the top. Nobody sits at the top because Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. The, the goal is to reach a state of nirvana, Hindus, on the other hand, would say that there are thousands of gods and goddesses waiting for you at the top. That's because everything is God. You're God, I'm God, this music stand's God. Muslims would say that Allah is waiting at the top. Jews would say that Yahweh, the God of Moses, Abraham, the children of Israel is sitting for us at the top. Now, I'm not trying to make light of what these different religions teach. Rather, I'm trying to point out although not with enough depth, that there are drastic and irreconcilable differences between these religions and Christianity. We can't deny that. You see, Jesus' claims, they set Christianity apart from any other religion in the world. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the way to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way. The path to God is through me. Other religious leaders say, Follow me and I'll show you how to find truth. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the truth. Some religious leaders say, hey, let me, let me point you to God. Let me help you get there. Jesus says, I am God. I am the only God. Pastor picking up on, on some of these once said, R.C. Sproul is his name. He said, Moses could mediate the law. Muhammad could brandish a sword. Buddha could give personal counsel. Confucius could offer wise saying. But none of these men, none of these men was qualified to offer forgiveness for the sins of the entire world. Jesus alone made that claim. And Jesus alone was qualified to do it. So here's what I want us to see. The basic message of all religions is far, far from being the same. All spiritual paths do not lead up the same mountain. That that idea actually is somewhat dangerous because it obscures the real and the crucial differences between them. This is a a picture, I think. Maybe? Mm, That's not a picture. There it is. Although that's a bad picture, sorry. Um, This is a picture of one of the most famous mazes uh, in the world. It's located uh, in the gardens at Hampton Court near London. So you probably can't tell very well in this, but, but those hedges are like eight feet tall. They were planted back in 1702. The maze itself, it covers a third of an acre. And they say that the winding paths are, are like over a half mile long. And whether you've been to this particular maze or not, most of you, if not all of you, have been in a maze before. And you know the point is to get where? To the center, right? And you know that some paths quickly lead to a dead end. Others take you further into the maze before becoming a dead end. Some paths run parallel to the other. One stops, some keep going. 
And of course, the challenge of the maze is to get to the final destination, the center of the maze. See, instead of thinking about religions as paths leading up a mountain, it's more helpful. I think it's better to think of them as a maze heading in different directions. Now, let me say this. If you're here tonight and you aren't sure what you believe, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. And that's an okay place to be if you're a part of this community. But I want to say this. I want to encourage you to think carefully, to think carefully about the different paths that these different religions are endorsing. Grab a friend, grab a staff member, read a book. We'd love to talk. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Where do each of those paths take you? You see, different religions head in different directions, and Jesus makes the unique claim that only one gets to the center. So the first myth is that all religions are basically the same. The second, uh, and this one gets a little heady, so stay with me, is that all religions have an equal claim on the truth. So, So I often hear people say something like this, well, Christianity is just one truth among many. It can't possibly, Christianity can't possibly be the whole truth. And so similarly, this, this argument, they'll use, people will use an illustration to make their point. Some of you have probably heard it. They say, imagine for a second several blind men walking down the road. And these blind men, they bump into an elephant and start touching it, right? And so the first blind man, he's, he's feeling the elephant's trunk, and he says, man, this thing is long and flexible. It's got to be a snake, Second dude's like, no way, bro, it's huge, it's thick, it's round, it's a tree trunk for sure. Third guy's like, you guys are idiots, this thing is massive, it's flat, it's big, it has to be a wall. Now you get the point, right? Each blind man is only able to see part of the elephant, and because none of them can see the entire thing, each person has to create his own version of reality based on his limited experience, based on his limited perspective. And so in other words, this might connect, truth became relative, right? You have your truth, I have my truth. And so in the same way, it's argued that that all religions are only able to feel part of the, the metaphorical elephant. And because of this, all religions create their own equal version of the truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and it doesn't really matter, we're all right. But there's a problem with that illustration. It actually backfires on itself. Because the story is told from the perspective of who? The perspective of someone that isn't blind. It's told from the perspective of someone that can see all these dudes touching this elephant, kind of like dorks. In other words, someone sees the whole truth. And so people argue that, that no one religion can possibly claim to be the whole truth, to see the whole truth, to have the whole truth. But here's a question. How can they possibly know that unless they themselves have the superior comprehensive knowledge that they claim no religion has? How can they make that claim? You see, the point is this, this idea that all truth is relative and therefore equally valid, that in and of itself is a comprehensive truth claim. It sounds nice, but it ultimately implodes on itself. 
And so when people use that kind of argument with respect to religion, they're doing the very thing that they say you can't do. They're making a comprehensive claim about what's true. Jesus' disciples certainly didn't think that truth was relative. They believed that salvation was only found, that truth was only found in Jesus. Now, fortunately, in the United States, you can believe whatever you want about that statement. You can believe whatever you want in response to Jesus' claims, the disciples' claims, but just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. That's an important distinction. Third myth. I think this one might hit close to home for most of us. Myth number three, Christians are arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Christians are arrogant to think that, they're the, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I can't tell you how many times I've had to answer some form of the question, Kyle, isn't it completely arrogant, isn't it completely intolerant and completely unloving to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Isn't it arrogant to say that? Isn't it unloving and narrow-minded? If I can be completely honest for a second, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. It is intolerant. It is completely unloving. It is arrogant to claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Unless, of course, it's true. Because if it's true, and I believe that it is, the most compassionate, the most loving thing that we can possibly do is tell other people that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. See, the Bible teaches us that that every single person, every person in this room, every person in this world suffers from sin. And that sin, it separates us from a holy and perfect God. And because God is holy, our sin has to be punished. Our wrongdoing, someone has to pay for it. But because Jesus loves us, he voluntarily offers himself as our substitute. He willingly paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. Why? So that through his death and through his physical, historical resurrection, it really happened. When we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. Not once, not twice, but forever. You see, if that's true, if that's true, and it's not arrogant, it's not unloving to share that, See, no one thinks that it's arrogant and unloving to say that there's only one way to get to the center of a maze. No one says that, right? If you tell someone, hey, there's only one way to get to the center of that maze, nobody is going to call you arrogant. Nobody is going to call you narrow-minded. Nobody is going to say that's unloving. The same thing is true with Jesus. See, it's not arrogant. It's not unloving to share the only true hope that the world has. And in fact, if we don't, that's unloving. If we claim to know the truth and we don't share that, that's arrogance. You see, when Peter and John, when they're arrested, when they're interrogated, when they're intimidated, when they're threatened in order to shut up, they speak. They don't hold back. Do we? 
Do you? Do you hold back? See, I'm afraid we do. And I say we because I do as well. I'm afraid that our insecurities, I'm afraid that our fears, I'm afraid that our doubts, I'm afraid that our social pressures, I'm afraid that our apathy, I'm afraid that our busyness, I'm afraid these things hold us back sometimes from telling other people about Jesus. From telling other people that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. From telling other people that Jesus is the only way to know God. That Jesus is the only place that salvation is found. Just be real honest with yourself for a second. What holds you back? What holds you back from sharing that? See, let me encourage you tonight by saying that your belief that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that your belief that Jesus is the only way to God, that that's the best news that anybody will ever hear, if that's what you believe, that does not make you a bigot. That does not make you intolerant. That doesn't make Christians exclusive and arrogant and narrow-minded. Now, of course, we absolutely have to admit that at times serious injustices have been done by people claiming to know and love Jesus. We have to admit that. And we need to apologize for that because it's wrong and Jesus hates it. But embracing the claims of Jesus should always, always move us to love and empathy and compassion, not hatred and arrogance. You see, I mentioned earlier that the Greco-Roman world was polytheistic in their religious beliefs. But, but to be honest, their culture was a mess. See, their, their cultural practices, they were, they were brutal. Um, it was a highly stratified economic system. The poor were despised. Certain races were considered scandalous if you spent time around them. Women in particular had a low status, often subjected to infanticide, forced marriages, lack of economic equality. Christians, on the other hand, insisting that there was, in fact, one true God, and that one true God was Jesus Christ. They were remarkably welcoming to those that their culture marginalized. See, they mixed with different races and different classes. They gave generously to the poor, not only their own poor, but to the poor of those that believed different things. Christians upheld the dignity of women During the plagues of the first couple centuries, they cared for the sick, they cared for the dying, often at the expense of their own lives. Why? Why? Why would such an exclusive belief system, if that's what it is, move Christians to be so open to others? Because they had the strongest possible resource for loving and empathizing with others, for showing sacrificial compassion and generosity. You see, at the very heart of the early church's beliefs was a man who died for his enemies while praying for them. A man who died for his enemies while praying, not just for them, but praying for their forgiveness. You see, reflecting on that reality, it led the early church to a radically different way of living. It led the early church to a radically different way of interacting with those that were different from them. 
And so this claim that Jesus is the way, not a way, that Jesus is the truth, not a truth, that Jesus is the life, not a life, it's never to be ammo to hurt other people. It's never to be reason to be a jerk, to condemn people, to stand in a circle and yell bad things. It's an invitation. It's an invitation into a story unlike any other story. A story that changes and transforms our lives forever if we let it. And so I'm going to say it again. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Peter and John say salvation is found nowhere else. They're either they're right or they're terribly wrong. Jesus and the disciples are either completely right or they're absolutely wrong. There's no in-between. Blaise Pascal, you might know his name or know about him. He was a 17th century philosopher, mathematician. He had an argument in one of his books, the, the Ponsets. It was kind of a collection of his ideas about theology and philosophy put together after his death. He had, in, in, in one of, uh, in that book, he had this thing that's become known as Pascal's Wager. The gist of it is this. Pascal basically argued that, that there are two ways to live. You can either live as if God exists, or you can live as if he doesn't. And so he goes on, that's not that terribly enlightening, but, but he goes on to argue He goes on to argue that it's better, it's far better to live your life based on the fact that God exists. Because if he does, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. But if you live your life as if he doesn't, and at the end of your life you find out that he does, well, you've gained little and have lost everything. As the music team comes up, What are you betting your life on? As you're sitting here right now, as you're listening to me, as you're reflecting, as you're thinking, what are you betting your life on? Not just what you believe. Not just what you believe, but how you live. How is how you're living showing what you're betting your life on? What do your beliefs say about what you're betting your life on? You see, Jesus said that I am the way and the truth and the life. Peter and John said salvation is found nowhere else. Do you believe them? Do you actually believe what they say? Does it even matter? Does it really matter? Well, according to Jesus, it does. According to Jesus, if we get it wrong about him, then ultimately it doesn't matter what else we get right. If we get it wrong about Jesus, then it doesn't matter what else we get right. And that's because there is one name above all names, one name under heaven by which you and I are saved. Jesus. Amen.